How you going? Yeah, a couple of thumbs up, a couple of nods, a lot of silence. <laughs> Not sure how to interpret that. We'll, we'll work that one out as we go. Uh, I'm just going to do a little bit of furniture rearranging, if that's okay. Sorry. I want to be able to see everybody over here as well. Um, as I'm doing that, um, let me firstly just say, if you were here last weekend, thanks for coming back. I take that as a vote of confidence, and I, I, I'm encouraged by that, and it's nice to have you all here again this morning. And also, let me just um, mention, as, as Mike mentioned his, his prayer, uh, last night we had a, there was a marriage enrichment evening, and uh, a bunch of married couples, not so young married couples anymore, uh, got together, and we were incredibly blessed by some even not so younger married couples. Um, and had an opportunity for our marriages to be invested into. And can I just say, it was a phenomenal night. It was absolutely brilliant. Um, I was speaking to one of the guys this morning, and he and I both agreed we had no breakfast this morning because we're still full from dinner last night. But beyond that, the conversation that was facilitated, the opportunity to receive and to be built into, was absolutely incredible. And so if you are a married couple... I want to strongly recommend that you keep an eye out for the next one that happens whenever that will be and make sure you do all you can to get there. It will be well worth the investment of your time to invest into your marriage. It was fantastic. I cannot recommend it highly enough. And so a huge thank you to all of our wonderful uh, folk who put that on for us last night and were willing to invest into the next generation that is a God spirit in you, and it is absolutely wonderful. God bless you. Thank you so much. All right, let me pray, and then we'll get into God's word together this morning. Father, we thank you so much for the gift we have of your holy scriptures, for the revelation that it is of who you are and, and what you're doing in the world, and the story that it tells of your incredible love and majesty and might and grace and mercy. As we open your word this morning, I pray, Lord, that you would speak with us. May we have hearts that are humble enough to receive your words to us today. And may we have spirits willing enough to allow your word to go deep in our soul, to change us, to shape us as your image, so that the hope of Jesus can be made known right around this world, with us, in us, and through us. We ask this in your holy name, Lord. Amen. Amen. So one of the greatest joys I have as a pastor is um, just having the privilege of being able to sit with people and hear their story. It is just such a joy for me to, to sit with someone and hear how they've navigated life, what God's done in them over the years, and how faith does or sometimes doesn't inform and weave through the experiences uh, that they've had over the years. I love hearing testimonies. Absolutely love the stories of God in our lives because testimonies, talking about what God is doing in our lives, builds faith, doesn't it? It builds the faith of the person sharing the testimony, but it also builds the faith of everybody hearing the testimonies as well. And, and there's just something so powerful about hearing a testimony. And one of the things that I would love to continue to grow and build and develop here at Mitchum is a culture of testimony sharing, telling the stories of what God is up to in our lives so that we can encourage one another. If he's done it in my life, there's no reason he can't do it in yours. 
That's the power of a testimony. That's the power of a story. There's just something about stories that just resonates deep with us in our soul. And I think one of the reasons for that is that I'm convinced we are, we are created. We're wired for stories. We experience life that way. And we experience God that way as well. The Bible, it's the story of God. It's the unfolding story of what God's done, of what God is doing, and what he will do in all of creation. And whilst the Bible is made up of 66 different books, written by a range of different authors, a bunch of different genres, written over about 1,500 years, it all works together. The Bible tells one unified story of what God is up to in the world. It's the greatest and truest story that has ever been written. And it informs how we understand life, doesn't it? And so what I want to do over these next four weeks uh, before we shift our focus toward Easter, is look at what is the story the Bible tells. What's the story that the Bible tells? Because as we launch into this next season of life and ministry at Mitcham, I think it's important that we're on the same page when it comes to the story. And so we're going to look at who God is in the story. We're going to look at who we are in the story. And then we're going to finish with what's God's end goal for the story. So we're going to start this morning on page 1, Genesis chapter 1, because it's always good to start a story at the very beginning. When was the last time you heard a message on Genesis chapter 1? It's probably been a little while, right? And so as we jump into Genesis chapter 1 this morning, I just want to point out there's a couple of things that we're going to avoid today, okay? First of all, we are going to avoid the evolution-creation debate And secondly, we're also going to avoid the literal, figurative, six-day creation debate as well. Okay, Now, I've got my own opinions about those things. I'm happy to chat about them. I'm not shying away from those conversations. But we're not going there today because I actually don't think those are the questions that are actually being answered by Genesis chapter 1. What I think the opening of the story actually is trying to show us and teach us is about who God is and what God does. And so we're going to start by focusing on God. Because as much as you and I are important, as much as we like to make ourselves the center of the story, I mean, how many of your parents growing up would say something like, the world doesn't revolve around you, you know? And as a kid, you think, yeah, it does. As much as we like to put ourselves in the center of everything, we're not the central figures in the story. God is. It's his story, and so he should take center stage. And that's important. That is really, really important because getting that foundational block in place will shape how we engage with the rest of the story that Scripture tells us. So who God is and what God does. And what Genesis chapter 1 shows us is, in fact, well, all the way through the Bible, that God is presented to us as a king. God is presented to us as a king. That's what I mean by who God is. He's 
the king. And again, this is another foundational block that we need to get into place right from the get-go. Because in the Western world, we've really kind of lost our understanding of the scope and function of a king. Because we don't really engage with that concept, really, do we? I mean, we have King Charles, yes. We had Queen Elizabeth prior to that. But beyond getting a day off for their birthday, we don't really have... Well, they don't have any impact on how we live in any way, shape, or form. And so I don't know that we connect with this concept of having a king who genuinely rules over us. But a king in ancient times, it's a totally different story. He has an elevated status amongst his people, and he leads them. And this is the framework that the biblical authors are using, are working from when they talk about God as king. And so we need to redefine our understanding of God as king. We need to reconnect with that. And I think these opening verses of Genesis show us who the king is and what the king does. Now, are our PowerPoints working or are they... No? Hey? The thumb... Nope, I don't have the thumb drive. It's upstairs. That's okay. You all get to look at me this morning. We'll go with that, hey? That's all right. All right, so here we go. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says, In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. It's a familiar line, isn't it? I reckon if I had said in the beginning, I reckon you all could have gone, God created the heavens and the earth. It's an incredibly familiar line. In fact, it's so familiar that people even outside of faith can often quote this verse as well. And so we're really familiar with it. But what we need to remember is just how big this statement actually is. It's huge. It is a, it's a summary statement in one sense. It's highlighting the entire package. It's a literary device that authors would use to, to highlight an entire thing by talking about the extremities of it. And so this is God's way of saying, do you see everything? Yeah, I created it. Like, all of it. I'm the source of this. Everything has its life, its movement, its existence because of me. And so straight away, this places God as the central figure in the story. Because over the last couple of years, or last couple of years, I wish, over the last couple of centuries, the Western world has become increasingly individualistic and inward focused. And this has actually had a significant effect on our theology on our doctrines. And this individualistic theology has given rise to some very interesting slogans and bumper stickers, little kind of catchphrases that we like to build our theology on. Uh, for example, I don't know if you've seen this one before. Have you heard of this one? Have you heard of the, 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 the... A lot of people used to have these bumper stickers on their cars. God is my co-pilot. Have you heard that one before? God is my co-pilot. Now, if you have that as a bumper sticker on your car, at the end of the sermon this morning, I'm going to pray. And typically when we pray, we all, we're, we're good Christians, so we close our eyes. That's your chance to sneak off and go and do whatever you want to do with that bumper sticker. Because as fun as that bumper sticker sounds, it's just not true. God is not your co-pilot. 
A co-pilot's job is to help the pilot fly the plane wherever the pilot wants to fly the plane, right? That's not God's job. If anything, if you want to go with that analogy, God, I think, is more like air traffic control. He's the one directing multiple pilots what path to fly their, their planes on. Church, we've got to stop writing our own story and hand the pen back over to the author because it's his story that he so graciously invites us to come and be a part of. Verse 2 says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And it's here I think we see the first way that God presents himself as king. And that is by the way he creates. God creates by speaking. You see, only people with genuine power can make things happen by speaking. I mean, I tell my kids to go and clean their room. They look at me like I have two heads. There's no power there. But when a king spoke, his words carried such weight that he could change every known element of how they did life. The king decided to make some new laws. He spoke and it happened. The king decided he wanted to go and expand the boundaries of his kingdom and, in, and invade that country. He spoke and it happened. And God shows his authority. He shows his kingship here by speaking creation into being. The word of God is a creative force. And I think it's telling that his first act of creation is light. He speaks light into existence before he begins to shape creation and the creatures of the world. And I think that's significant because it's a key way that we see God work. He shines before he shapes. God often shines light on something before he moves to shape it. Let me give you an example of what I mean from Scripture. Have you ever wondered, why did Jesus wait 33 years to die? Why wait 33 years before he died? I mean, he was God incarnate right from the get-go, right from birth. His death was always going to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so why wait 33 years? Well, because he was shining light. He was shining light on what it means for us to live as the image of God, to live in the fullness of our humanity as we've been created to live. And he was also shining light on the fact that the, the, the religious systems that the Israelites clung to, that the do's and don'ts they ticked off, were insufficient to reconcile them to God. Because God knows what we need truly better than we even know ourselves. And so he shines light to show us what we actually need. Have you ever been in a spot where you've wanted God to do something in your life and it's just not happening fast enough? Ever been in that sort of a space before? Like you're praying, God, come on. I need you to come and do this thing. Can you hurry up, please? And it just feels like he's ignoring you. 
See, sometimes I think God answers that kind of a prayer by saying, what you think you need right now is not actually what you need. See, I, I know you want it, but it's not what you need. And I love you too much to give you something that's not going to help. And so God shines his light and he graciously gives us the time to see what we actually need. It's his light that brings order to creation. And it's his light in our lives that shows us what we really need. He shines before he shapes. Verse 6 says, And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And here I think we see glimpses of the other two ways that God presents himself as king, especially in these opening verses of, of the story. He creates by speaking, which he does again here. And then secondly, he also names what he creates. He names what he creates because naming something signifies a sovereign right over that thing. When our kids were born, Sarah and I were the ones who decided what they'd be named because we were the ones who had that sovereign right over them. They were ours. They were our kids. If you were to invent a new whiz-bang product, you're the one who gets to decide what it's called because you have the sovereign rights over it. And you naming something shows the world that it's yours. God names creation. And in doing so, he's saying, this is mine. By the way, do you know he does that with you too? We see throughout scripture that multiple examples, that often when God would call someone to himself, he would signify that by giving them a new name. And we read in, in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation, as the story comes to its climactic conclusion, that God gives us a new name. And we need to understand, that's God saying, you're mine. It's not just a sign of authority, but it's a sign of his sovereign right to take possession of what he has created. And so he creates by speaking, he names what he creates. And then thirdly, as a king, he sets the boundaries. The king sets the boundaries. God puts things in their place and defines the parameters of their existence because it's the king's right to define the boundaries of his kingdom. And it's good for the citizens of the kingdom that the king does that because it's within the boundaries of the kingdom that the citizens are actually safest. Because when God sets his boundaries... His boundaries define his blessings. The blessings of God are found within the boundaries of the kingdom that he sets. I like to call this the white line principle. It wouldn't be a sermon from Nick if there wasn't a sporting illustration. So, so go with me here. If you think of a football field, the white boundary line around the outside of the football field helps us to understand where the game is supposed to be played, right? It defines where the game is supposed to be played. Because if you took that white line away, 
Could you imagine trying to play a game of football with no boundary lines around? Hello. I'm back. There we go. If you took the white lines away from a footy field, the game would descend into complete and utter chaos, wouldn't it? Imagine you could just pick the ball up, you could run off into the stands, you could take it down the street, you could hop in your car and drive it home. You could do whatever you like. You could play the game anywhere. It would descend into complete and utter chaos, not just for the players, but the people watching the game as well. But it's the white lines around the field that actually define where the game should be played, to an extent how the game is played, and it's those white boundary lines that actually make the game fun to play. And God the King sets up these white lines for our lives in his kingdom, not because he's a cosmic killjoy and wants to limit or, or, or restrict us or take away our fun, but because it's in his boundaries where life will make the most sense, where it's the most fulfilling, it's the most fun. Because God's boundaries define where his blessing is found. He loves to pour out blessing on his creation. And as the king, he defines where that blessing is. God shows his kingship by creating boundaries and inviting us to live within those boundaries because he is a good king. Now, there is so much more we could say, but for the sake of time, we're going to skip a few verses and head down into uh, verse 14. And it says in Genesis 1, verse 14, And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. Again, there's that boundary creation. God bringing order to chaos, bringing all creation into his boundaries. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. Verse 16 says, God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And then to finish that verse in what has to be one of the great understatements of the entire Bible, he also made the stars. Let's drill into that for a minute. Because in those five words, we see the utter majesty of God. Have you ever been out bush somewhere away from the light pollution of the cities? You're out camping in a beautiful clear night sky and you just look up into the night and see the stars. I mean, it's breathtaking, isn't it? Those clear night skies where you look up and see the, the Milky Way, the stars of our galaxy. It is just, it's amazing. It's incredible to witness that. We had the opportunity when we lived up in the northwest of WA to spend time at um, Karajini National Park. And if you've never been to Karajini, you've got to put it on your bucket list. It was absolutely incredible. But the thing, one of the things that stood out for me was that the night skies up there. It was just absolutely incredible. I did have a photo I was going to show you, and you'd all go, ooh, ah, but you're just going to have to picture it in your mind, right? The stars in those night skies were just absolutely everywhere. And you know, what science tells us 
is the stars we see on any given night. That's not even a blip on how many stars there actually are, right? I was reading uh, during the week that what we see with our naked eye, they estimate we see on any given night somewhere in the vicinity of about 10,000 stars. And that's amazing in and of itself. That's breathtaking already, right? But apparently, conservative figures would estimate that in our galaxy, there is somewhere in the vicinity of 100 billion stars. So in other words, what you see on any given night, there are 100,000 times more what you see in the night sky. Can you wrap your head around that? I can't. It is magnificent. But then just to take it a little bit further, conservative estimates again suggest that there is approximately 100 billion galaxies beyond our galaxy. And each of those 100 billion galaxies have a conservative estimate of 100 billion of their own stars. So there are 100 billion galaxies with 100 billion stars in the sky. Just try and comprehend that. Be careful when you do, though, because you're going to need to lie down afterwards. That is just mind-blowing. And God says, yeah, I put them all there. This is our God. A God who can fling a hundred billion galaxies with a hundred billion stars into place. He is magnificent. You know, the absolute absurdity of the Christian story the craziness of the Christian claim is that this God who pays attention to a trillion stars in the sky, he also pays attention to you. The king of the cosmos, the one who put the stars in their place and created all of creation, who brought order to chaos, also knows your name. He knows exactly what you're going through. He sees you, he knows you, and he loves you. In fact, the, the very heart of the Christian story is that this king of the cosmos came to earth and died for you so that you could step into his story. That's crazy. It just happens to be true as well. And we need to wrestle with the enormity of this. Because as we continue on with the story and try to understand it, we have to start with understanding who the author is and what he's inviting us into. Because we love to grab the pen and write our own stories, don't we? We'll never get to the right ending on our own because God's the one who's written the story. The king of the cosmos is the author of life. And so church, if you don't remember anything else this morning, just remember this. Take this home with you. Let's make sure that we let him be the author. It's not 
that we invite God into our story. He's invited us into his. Church, let's make sure that we let him be the author. My question for you this morning to take home and think on over the week is, is just simply, what's one thing you can do this week to signify your desire to hand the pen over to the author of life? What's something you can do this week? What do you need to do to let the king of the cosmos become the author of the story? It's his story. That's where life makes sense. That's where blessing is found. That's the foundation block that helps us make sense of the rest of the story the Bible tells. What's one thing you can do this week to signify handing over the pen to the author of the story, the author of life, the king of the cosmos? Let's pray. Lord God, this morning I want to take a moment to recognize and acknowledge that you, Lord, are the one who authors the story. You're the one who is the author of life. You're the creator, the sustainer of everything. And it's in you, it's through you, it's because of you that we have our being, we have our movement, we have a story that we get to tell. And Lord, it's your incredible grace and your loving generosity that you invite us into your story through your son, Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, that you have taken all the steps necessary to open the door and invite us to come and be a part of the story that you were telling. And I pray this morning, Lord, for, for those of us who have been holding on to the pen a little too tightly and trying to write our own stories, Lord, would you remind us again that you are the gracious author of life, that life abundant is found in you and you alone. And would you give us the courage to hand the pen back over to you and allow you to write us into your story. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to write your story with us here at Mitcham Baptist. That we would, as a community of believers, know your leadership, your direction, your calling, your vision for your church. And just simply have humble hearts seeking to join you in what you're doing, Lord. It's your story. So have your way. Lead us in that, I pray. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much.